Easter this year. Oh, hey, I, I guess being a pastor, I should probably know when Easter is, right? Isn't it interesting? We have year-round Christmas stores, Christmas in July, and while Halloween used to hold at bay Christmas in the malls and stores, it seems it's losing its resolve. Man, we build up to Christmas for two, three months, and yet we often don't even know when Easter is. Well, yeah, it doesn't help that the date changes every year, but hey, Easter's our great hope, our great opportunity. And while there's certainly not the buildup in our culture for Easter that we have for Christmas, and that's probably okay, there certainly should be a buildup for Christ's followers. Easter's an opportunity to talk about Jesus, the gospel, the church, and those are increasingly difficult topics to bring up in our culture, but Easter gives us a bit of a chance there. I want to encourage us to use Easter this year. Instead of complaining and grieving about our culture, speak the gospel to it. Do this. Think about five people. Call them your Easter five. So here's going to be our buildup to Easter. Number one, make my Easter five list. Number two, pray for them each day that they're open to the gospel, to an invitation for their good and well-being. Hey, do something for them. That's number three. Number four, invite them to be with you at one of our Easter services. You know, if every one of us did this, even if they say no to our invitation, that's still over 10,000 people that we've been praying for, doing something good for, and inviting to be with us at Easter, meaning we're engaging them in the conversation of Easter. I believe that can do a whole lot more for our culture than about anything. Hey, let's give it a try. Happy Easter. Man, there's something I like about that guy. He is, he's good. It feels really awkward to stand here so engaged in a video of myself. But uh, hey, folks, I'll be honest with you. I am probably as excited about Easter as I've ever been anticipating Easter as much as I ever have. And I, and I don't have any reason that I'm getting ready to tell you why that is. It, it, it just happened. I just think, I, I think we need it. I think our culture needs it. Man, we need what Easter gives us. And that means you and I using it. And wouldn't it make a difference? I mean, if 2,000 of us really were had five people really were praying for 10,000 people, doing a good in their lives, engaging them in a, in a conversation on Easter. Couldn't that make a difference? Man, as much as that is, and I, and I, want, to be, I want to encourage you right now to begin doing that and, and putting that list together, I want to ask you to do one other thing with me, one other thing for me. Would you join me in, in praying for 100 people to come to faith in Jesus Christ and follow him in believer's baptism. But between today and the end of April, uh, kind of through this Easter season. Now, the end of April is beyond the Easter season. And honestly, folks, I, I mean, don't we pray? Don't we hope people are saved here every single Sunday? But, uh, man, let's just... Let's just focus our efforts as a family to believe on, on God for something big, whether he uses this Easter 5 or, or, or whether it's what, what's going on in our services that people are getting saved, that God would visit this place over the next seven Sundays and that we get to see a mighty work of his for saving people. Amen? Amen. Let, let's do Let's just stop right now and commit this to the Lord, okay? 
Father, we come before you today and we, we praise you and we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for what we celebrate at Easter. And God, we, we pray that you would guide us, show us how this can be used in our lives. For those that we love, those that we work with, those that we're engaging with day in and day out. And Father, I pray that you would visit the heights. I, I, I pray that you would visit this place with your mighty work, with your grace and your goodness. And that, God, we could see a hundred people over the next seven weeks profess their faith in Christ and begin following you through the waters of baptism. God, I pray that not only do we pray for this, look for this, desire this, but I I pray we're open to how you might use us in bringing this about. Lord, some of these hundred could be people we love, people we know, people we, we relate with day in and day out. God, may this be our heart and our desire, and we, we lay it before you. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, listen, I want to start this morning by having you maybe think of, in, in your mind, in your opinion, what is the most important belief in the Christian faith? If you were to say, here it is, one belief, one sentence, this is what's most important. What, what's the first thing that comes to your mind you know, as, as we maybe start to try to think through that, I, I think how we answer it kind of depends on where we start from. You, you can kind of take several angles at trying to answer this question, and that might lead us all to different places. You know, I, I, maybe if you kind of start with an answers in Genesis, if you know that, that ministry and kind of their teaching, you might say, well, what, whatever it is, it comes out of the first 11 chapters of the Bible, because the rest of the Bible is based on what happens in those first 11 chapters. We learn there's a God. He's the creator. We have sin. It needs to be resolved. And, and so you might trace it back to something like that. Somebody else might say, oh, I, I think maybe the most important doctrine, the most important belief is, is the Trinity. I mean, you've got all these world religions out there. And doesn't the world think they're all the same? All basically the same. And and yet the Trinity, now that's what really distinguishes us. Christianity is a monotheistic, a one God religion. But but Trinity, the Trinity kind of distinguishes us from those other monotheistic religions like Islam and Judaism. And it certainly distinguishes us from from polytheistic, a lot of gods, multiple God religions like like Hinduism. So, oh, Trinity is the most important Uh, You know, the truth is we could probably go on all afternoon. I mean, we could just think through different ideas and different things. Well, if you have this, you've got to have this. What's the most important? Now, I probably should say that the Bible doesn't actually ask us to do this. (laughs) Nowhere does God say, hey, could y'all get together, come up with a list of beliefs, and then vote on the most important one. We don't have to identify a single belief or or say it in a single sentence. But you know what's interesting? Paul kind of does that. He doesn't do it, I think, for a theological reason that you and I can kind of prioritize and order the importance of beliefs. I don't think that's what he's doing. I don't think he's trying to say, hey, if you're going to start somewhere in the Bible, start here. He kind of has this real practical reason that he kind of labels this one idea as being really significant. Let me show you what he does. Look up here on the screen. 1 Corinthians 15, he says, For if the dead are not raised... Now, I wonder when I said, what's the most important belief, how many of us first thought of the resurrection? I mean, I'd say that's pretty important. I'd say it's pretty cool. I don't know that I would have put it like in my top three or anything. 
But let's see, look at what Paul says here. If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is what? Futile. Your faith, your, your beliefs, you, you, you know, your hope in life. Empty, zero, meaningless. It's nothing. If this isn't true, then who cares what you believe? Oh, he doesn't say who cares what you believe. Sure he does. Read the rest of it. What do I gain if the dead are not raised? Let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Hey, 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 listen. If there's no resurrection, if there's no place out there where we go and, and stand before God, and there's, he's kind of at this fork in the road that determines how we spend eternity. Hey, listen, if none of that happens... Well, then who cares what you believe? Who cares what you do? Hey, we die. That, that's the bottom line. That's the big truth. We die. But, but if we live, if, if, if we can live eternally, if there is something about what we believe or, or what we do that shapes what that eternity is going to look like, well, well, then all of a sudden, there, you know, anything can kind of become significant. Anything can kind of become important. Now, again, I think when Paul is saying this, I, I, I don't, again, I don't, I don't think he's trying to make, this is the most important, you've got to know this one. I, I don't think he's trying to get us to that. I do think he would say to any Christ follower, listen, if there's one belief... If there's one thing you grasp, one thing you hold on to, one thing you can defend, one thing you want to share, one thing that is your hope in life, it's this. It's the gospel. We can be saved from sin. And because we can be saved from sin, we can be resurrected from the dead. You know, folks, we, we live in a world today where I think people are finding less and less hope, less and less answers in the things of this world. Now, I, I don't know that that's absolutely unique to our time, but, but I just think around in America today, I don't think anybody's happy. I'm not saying nobody had a good day yesterday. I'm not saying nobody had a happy moment, a happy experience, the, the emotion of happiness this week. But, but when you look at, at what weighs people down, the problems and the in issues, whether they be individual or whether they be culture, I just don't see anybody walking around in America right now saying, we won! Everything in life is the way I'd want it! This is perfect! No, no, nobody's really saying that. I, I think people are more frustrated. I think they're more angry. I think, I think there's more a sense of hopelessness. I know, I know probably a lot of us kind of grieve where things have been going in our culture. Well, well, yes, on one hand we should. On another hand, I find it very exciting. I think the time is more ripe for the gospel than ever before. I, I, I think the time in which people are looking for answers. Folks, don't we as Christians... Whether we're in 2017 America or 1900 China or 1347 Europe, whatever culture, whatever time, aren't we a people who can walk among anybody and say, hey, we've won. But not an exclusive victory. It's, it's a victory you can have too. We have hope. We have answers. That, that's what we believe, right? As we go through this, this time in the next couple of weeks, folks, of Looking at the gospel, I hope it emboldens and shapes us, readies us more around the gospel than ever before. Because I think Paul would say to you and I, man, if there's anything you're going to grasp, grasp the gospel.
Let's look at how he says that to us. Again, 1 Corinthians 15, but another set of verses. I want to begin in verse 1. If you have a Bible with you today, uh, turn to it or a Bible app. Open that up, 1 Corinthians 15. You'll find that well over halfway through your New Testament, kind of near the, the end of the Bible there. Go past John, Acts, Romans you'll hit 1 Corinthians, get to 2 Corinthians. Well, obviously you've gone too far, right? Because first comes before the second. That looks confusing for some of y'all. But I'll put it on the screen next week. Okay, 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8, but I want you to really dial in on verses 3 and 4 when we get there, okay? 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. That's what makes us brothers and sisters. That's what makes us family. We receive the gospel. Has there been a time, a place in your life when you have received the gospel, the truth of the gospel, the the good news of the gospel, the hope of the gospel? Have you received that in which you now stand? See, not only did I receive it, but now I'm standing in it. This is, this is how I live life. This is, this is how life is shaped. This is how I respond. This is how I look at things, everything. The gospel is the, the center. That's what I stand on and by which you are being saved if you hold fast. And you cling to it. You hold on to it more than anything else. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Unless you believed in vain. Gosh, that kind of throws out a, an uncomfortable possibility there. There, there is potentially this possibility to, to believe in vain. To have a, but what does in vain mean? It, it means worthless, right? If, if you do something in vain, that, that means it, it counted for nothing. You did it, it was, a, it was a waste of your time. I mean, there's the potential here of a belief that actually doesn't add up to anything, that actually doesn't mean anything. Now, that's kind of surprising and dis- disappointing, maybe scary. But you stop and think about it. I mean, that, it, it makes sense. It, it's quite possible. We've seen it. Maybe we've experienced it ourselves. You, you had this moment, this place back there somewhere where you, you went through kind of this religious experience or a, just kind of an intensely spiritual moment or maybe you kind of walked through a real important religious ritual and it really meant a lot to you in that moment and, and it all kind of seemed to get, come together. But really, no sooner was that moment done than you just kind of moved on past that belief. I mean, you'd say you believed, but it doesn't mean anything in your life. It doesn't shape any. You don't, you don't grasp it. You don't hold on to it. it. It's not what you stand on. It's not what you stand in. It's just this thing back there somewhere. That's a vain belief. It won't add up to anything. Verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance. This is a priority. This is primary. This is central to who we are as Christ followers. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely untimely born, he appeared also to me. I find this a bit of a, a unique verse 
in that it so distinctively sets out to define the gospel. I mean, when, when you read this, it's pretty clear Paul is saying, this is the gospel. You know, I think there's a lot of verses where the, the gospel kind of bubbles up. And, and, and I think that's the kind of the verses we tend to run to first. I mean, if somebody were to come to me and say, hey, would you share a verse with me that just really shows me the gospel? You want to know something strange? This isn't the one I would turn to first. I, I bet for some of you, you know, maybe you've studied the gospel. Maybe you've been in Bible studies. You've looked at this. When you think of the gospel, this maybe isn't the first passage you go to. Don't we kind of like to run to John 3.16 first? Man, God, for God so loved the world. Hey, that's a pretty significant truth of the gospel, isn't it? God loved. That he gave his only son. Yeah, this idea of giving his son and that kind of wraps in the death. God gave his son so that whoever would believe, hey, believe's an important word in the gospel, isn't it? Would not perish. Oh, wait a minute. Some, you mean I'm on a road to perishing? I need to be rescued? I need to be saved? Yeah, when you believe, then you won't perish, but you'll have eternal life. Uh, you know, another verse I run to a lot, as a matter of fact, you hear me run to it a lot, Romans 10, 9, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, what will happen? We'll be saved. And, and I'm not getting ready to say here, we shouldn't go to those, we should go to this one. No, I'm not, I'm not saying that. Th those verses are the gospel. The gospel rises up in and through those verses and, and many others. But what we have here is Paul almost kind of really in an, in an academic way, almost in this teaching way, say, hey, listen, listen, Christ followers, let's understand and let's know what the gospel it is. Here it is. This is the gospel. And, and what are the words that he gives us there? Christ, sins, death, burial, resurrection. And I think as we look at these, we'll find those words even gain a fuller meaning and a, and a fuller power, if you will, when you understand the phrase according to the scriptures and, and even the word appear. Well, folks, that's what we're going to do for the next three weeks. We're, we're going to walk through this passage. We're going to be right here for three weeks and we're going to shape the series around three words. Now, I think I just counted five and, and even said some others, but three words there. I think when you read verses three and four, it's kind of clear. There's three distinctive pieces of this gospel. There's death, there, there's burial, and there's resurrection. Now, I'm guessing some of us in here would have said, yeah, I would have guessed death and I would have guessed resurrection. Burial, is that like just extra information? Hey, what role does burial play in the gospel? Well, come back next Sunday and you'll find out because that's what we're looking at next Sunday. But today we're going to look at that first word, death. Death. This is the gospel. This is the good news. Christ died for our sins. According to the scriptures. Now, I, I say we're going to look at that today. We, we could unwrap that statement the rest of our lives, couldn't we? You can just spend a little time there every single day and keep seeing its beauty and its power and its goodness and its love for you. Now, I say that today we're going to start by looking at the death, that first word death. And the way I'm going to do that is by not looking at the word death, but by looking at another phrase. And that's that phrase, according to the scriptures. I think Paul is, is saying there, we heard him say it twice, according to the scriptures, I think there's a couple of things going on there. One, as he gives you and I this definitive statement, he wants us to know where it came from. 
Hey, hey, this isn't just our, our denominational belief. Hey, this just isn't what the guy up front says. Hey, this isn't just kind of the belief, the flavor of the day. No, th- this idea of the gospel is anchored, it is found according to the scriptures. This is God's word. He's putting God's authority on it, right? Hey, this isn't what I dreamed up. As a matter of fact, it is what we receive from God according to the scriptures. So these words, death, burial, resurrection, this is according to the scriptures. This is, we get this from God's authority. But I think another thing that Paul might be doing here is kind of explaining we shouldn't be surprised how God solved the problem. Because you see, we're looking for a Messiah and one that gets beaten up and hung on a cross to die. Isn't how I thought God would do this? Right? I mean, doesn't that, isn't this one of the things that makes our religion just a little bit strange? God sends a son to get beaten up and hung on a cross. Now let's stop and think about that word for a moment, Messiah. And, and, and we'll start with a little M, Messiah. Not the Messiah, just the idea of Messiah. The word Messiah is a Hebrew word. It means anointed one. The Greek word is Christ. Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. The Greek word is Christ. It also means anointed one. But anointed to do what? Picked to do what? Chosen to be the one who does what? And... and it, the, Probably the idea of Messiah is the one who will, well, fix everything. Just clean up this huge mess all over this thing we call earth. The, the Messiah is the one who brings an answer. He's going he's gonna to defeat my enemies. He's going to solve my problem. I mean, it's just a big S on his chest, right? Superman, come and fix everything. Every society wants that. They may not use the word Messiah, but every, every society, every individual is looking for someone, is looking for something that'll fix all this, that, that, that'll make everything work. Now, for the Jews, it was a very dominant idea, and they didn't dream it up. It was God in His Word who told them, I'm going to send you a Messiah, capital M. Somebody's going to fix everything. And in in their mind, I don't know why I keep saying their mind, God's word said it. Probably the word that they would define the Messiah with is conquering king. They were looking for a king that would, would come and conquer any of their enemies. But at that time, at the time that Jesus arrived, it would be Rome, right? A king that would come and conquer Rome, conquer the enemies, conquer all enemies, solve cancer, feed the poor, and just usher us into a great time, a a great era of peace and prosperity. Well, gosh, that's not just what the Jews want. That's what all of us want, right? You know, a a great era, a a, a great season of peace and prosperity. That doesn't, that doesn't really change from one people group to another. We all kind of want the same thing. I mean, we might at use different words, right? I mean, if, if, if a Messiah comes to 2017 America, what does he do? Brings us good health care, right? He would, a Messiah for America today could show us how to have perfectly opened and perfectly closed borders at the exact same time. Yeah, no, he's, he's going to bring us peace and prosperity, right? No fears, no worries, no tears, no death, no enemies. Well, when you look at a guy hanging on a cross, just bleeding to death, 
kind of hard to look at that and say, ah, look, there he is. There he is conquering. There, there he is solving my problems. Because you see, our, our problem is that we don't understand who the enemy is. We don't, we don't understand what, what the enemy is that, is that is taking peace and prosperity out of our lives. Listen, God really does want to usher you into real life, real security, real peace, real health, real healing, real strength, real goodness, real joy. God wants you to have all that. And right now, you and I tend to think, oh, it's this enemy, and it's this health issue, and it's this financial. We, we've got these things that are keeping us from enjoying But folks, our problem, our enemy is not Rome. It's not ISIS. It's not Republicans. It's not Democrats. It's not poverty. It's not a a host, a hundred other ills of society. It's none of those things. Our problem is sin. It doesn't matter what nation is conquered out there as long as there's sin. It doesn't matter how many are fed as long as there's sin. It doesn't matter if cancer is cured. If there's sin, the enemies will keep on coming. So what's happening at the cross is a conquering king is really defeating our real enemy. See, what the Jews didn't pick up in the scriptures is that there was going to be two comings. A first coming as a suffering servant. A second coming as the conquering king. And, and, and so as, as, we're, as you know, they've got this image in mind. Paul's trying to say, this is our Messiah. This is our great answer. He's saying, don't be surprised at how God did this. This was always his plan. It's always been in the scriptures. Now, is that true? Is that true? Is this what the scriptures have always said? Is this what the scriptures have always shown us? Is, is the scriptures clear in its presentation? Well, yes, of course it is. And, and when Paul says scriptures, he's thinking of the Old Testament, right? Because the New Testament's being written. He's writing it right now, 1 Corinthians, right? We call that the part of the New Testament. The New Testament was coming together. Some of it hadn't even been written yet. And, and so when he says, according to the scriptures, he's saying the Old Testament... Well, does does the Old Testament say our real enemy is in fact sin? Yeah, Isaiah 59 verse 2 says that our iniquities have made a separation between us and God. And folks, God's the real source of good. Whatever good you're looking for, whatever good you want for yourself, for your home, for America, for the world, whatever you define as good, God is the source of all good. So anything that separates me from God, as long as I'm separated from God, that's the real enemy. That's the real issue. And what separates me from God? It's not cancer. Cancer doesn't separate me from God. Another nation doesn't separate me from God. Mean people don't separate me from God. My sin separates me from God. And the scriptures have said that the way sin is going to be dealt with, the way it's going to be paid for is by blood, which comes from death. Very, very important verse. Jot jot this one down somewhere. Leviticus 17, 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. God said in the very beginning, here is how sin is going to be attacked. Here's how it's going to be dealt with. Really, here's how it's going to be atoned for means paid for, covered. 
And he set up a system of the sacrifice of, of animals. It was a, a temporary reconciliation. It was a temporary atonement. But there would be these animals. And boy, God, God's not very nice to animals. Boy, God doesn't love the animals like PETA does. Listen, PETA has no concept of what it means to love and care for an animal in comparison to God. Those are his animals. He made them. Well, then why, why would he have them sacrificed? Why, why would he have all those animals killed? Because there's a greater problem than what happens to animals, and that's sin. You see, folks, the idea was, as you read what Leviticus is all about, and it's, it's kind of pedantic, it's kind of difficult to get through all these different sacrifices, all these different animals being sacrificed, and we kind of like read three pages of This isn't for me. And yet, really, what Leviticus is showing us is the, the futility of our own ability to take care of sin. I mean, it really, it's the idea that you would come at the, the end of every day and, 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 and whether at the beginning it was there in the tabernacle, the, the temporary tent, or, or later in history when it was the temple, that massive temple in, in Jerusalem, there was an altar and at the end of every single day, pouring off of that altar is literally hundreds of gallons of blood. Some of you pass out at a drop, right? Your own kid skins his knee, you got to go sit down. Hundreds of gallons of blood pouring, carcasses all over the place. So what a horrible scene. Yeah, it was kind of to bring us to the end of every day saying, look at this. Look at the devastation. Look at the loss of life. Look at all the... Man's sin cost a lot. Man's sin's not worth it. Re really, it was meant to bring us to the end of ourselves. All these dead animals don't change my heart. Yeah, sin's covered for a moment, but I'm still driven and motivated by sin. I'm still driven and motivated by my, myself. It was really meant to bring us to the end of ourselves. To where we had to cry out, God, how can we be saved? God, how can this sin be dealt with in my life? And God promised, according to the scriptures, a Messiah. Yes, a conquering king. Cure cancer. Defeat the nations. But first, deal with the real enemy. A Messiah who would die for your sin. Isaiah 53 is one passage. There's, there's a number of others. Psalm 22 is a great one. I mean, we can just keep going. But one I want to draw from right here, Isaiah 53. And as, as you can see by all the ellipses, I, I'm just pulling phrases out. I really encourage you to go and read all of Isaiah 53. It's super short. It'll take you like 30 seconds to read it. So read it three times. Give a whole three minutes to it. But listen to the ideas coming out of Isaiah 53. But he, who's he? The Messiah. This is, this is written in, in the 700s BC, over 700 years before Jesus, over 700 years before Rome was crucifying people on a cross. But he was pierced. For our transgressions. Crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds. Not with a big S on his chest. Not, not with a sword and how he conquers the nations. But by his wounds. 
We are healed. Doesn't that all of a sudden come to life when Paul says, hey, this death, it's according to the scriptures. What scriptures? With his wounds, we are healed. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, he bore the sin of many. Folks, this is, this is, this is right out of Leviticus the atonement lamb, the lamb would come and, and our hands would be laid on the head of, of the lamb and that was meant to symbolize a transfer of my sin. My sin was put onto that lamb and then the lamb was led away to the altar where it would be slaughtered and its blood spilled to pay for my sin. But my sin's still there. When John the Baptist was standing by that, rap, ba that river baptizing thousands of people, massive crowd out there, and all of a sudden Jesus is here. Very first time John the Baptist saw Jesus, he pointed to him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. New Testament coming right out of the Old Testament. In other words, what Paul is saying with that phrase, according to the Scriptures, don't be surprised by what God did. Don't be surprised by God's idea of a Messiah, of what He sent His Son to do. It's always been there. It's always been there in the Scriptures that this is how God would deal with this problem. And folks, I haven't grabbed a few oddball verses in the Old Testament. It's the theme and message of the Old Testament all the way through. There is sin and there is blood and there is death. There is sin and there is blood and there is death. There is sin and there is blood and there is death. Paul was writing to the Galatians in chapter 4, verse 4, and he says this. At the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son. That, that, that phrase, the fullness of time, means at the exact precise moment. That day, that night that, that you and I call Christmas was not random. Oh, hey, Jesus, Son, we might as well do this today. You got anything better to do? It, it wasn't a random place in time that the Father looked to His Son and said, Now! No, there was something about everything going on in human history that God said, this is the exact perfect moment. You know, it's kind of interesting to look at, at where humanity had been and, and what it was coming to under Roman rule and some of the advancements and why, what was going on historically that God would have said, hey, we've just arrived at the perfect time. See, I might have a tendency to say, hey, God, if you'd have waited a little longer, everybody looking at Jesus would have had iPhones and we could have videoed it. I mean, that's a pretty good Facebook Live. Look, he's walking on water. This is so cool. Wouldn't that be easier to believe? I mean, we read it here. I'm like, oh, gosh, if I could see it, I would believe. You know what? You wouldn't, believing wouldn't be one bit easier if you could see it on Facebook Live or see it Instagrammed or, or anything else. Seeing has never changed anything. Hey, people saw the miracles and still sinned. There was something about that moment that made it the exact right moment. It's kind of interesting to see historically what might have been involved in a statement like that. I would imagine to a certain degree there's some of that we can't fully grasp. But here's my question as I understand that. That was the exact moment to send your son to Israel under Roman rule when they're crucifying people? 
See, if I'm sending my son and just FYI, I wouldn't. There's not one of you that I would send my son to die for. Not one. I would let all of you die for my son. But I'm not sending him. But let's get past that, okay? That, you, know, you know, I'm, I'm God and, and this is what's going to solve the problem. And so I'm sending my son to die for you. You know when I'm sending my son? America, circa 2000. Why? Because when you de deem him worthy of death and when you send him to his execution, how are you going to do it? Lethal injection, right? We're, we're going to do this in a way that is, is clean, it's quick, it's painless. I mean, hey, we're killing somebody, but we, we are trying to attach the word humane to it, right? See, that's what I would want if I'm a father sending my son. I, I want a humane, quick, easy, quick, painless way that you're going to kill him. But this word says, no, God actually picked a moment, the precise moment, the perfect moment, and that moment included the cross. I mean, folks, when you travel through all of human history and you look at how enemies and nations have killed each other and have killed people, Rome ranks at the top. It ranks at the top of the most violent, horrific, bloody ways of killing and executing. Why? Why? I mean, how do you not know that and say, but God, why? Why would you, why would you send your own son to die like that? Because we don't get it. Even after 12, 1300 years of seeing the animal carcasses by the thousands pile up and, and untold gallons of blood pouring off the altar, all of that loss of life, all of that death, we still don't get that our sin's a big deal. There is, a, you say, well, what's the evidence that you think man thinks that way? Because there's almost this universal thought that we can be good enough. And that's why we created religions. R religions tell me how to, you know, do this and do that. And here's what God wants. And here's how we'll make God happy. And then I charge off into the religion of my choice to, to pick the God of my choice to make him happy by my choice. By the way, all of that makes me God, doesn't it? I define who God is. I define what makes him happy. I define how I do it. I define when I do it. I think that pretty much makes me God. But we have this mindset. Oh, you know, I've screwed up this week. I pop off a few Sundays at church. Maybe do a good deed along the way. And I'm good to go. The whole idea, the absolutely universal mentality that I can cover this, that I can be good enough, flies in the face of God, mocks God and everything that he has said about our sin. Do you realize that as we look at the horror and the violence of the bloody cross, it is to absolutely overwhelm us with how bad sin is and what it takes to resolve it, what it takes to reconcile us to God. If we were to bring Christianity down to one sentence. Bring the whole of our faith. What brings us to church today and why we sing songs and give and try to love each other and forgive each other. If we were to bring Christianity down to one single sentence. 
Christ died for our sins. His blood, His death in place of mine. Because the animals don't cover it. My money won't cover it. My good deeds won't cover it. Who really should actually die for my sins but me? But here's the problem. If it's my blood, and if it's my death, I can't recover from the payment. I can make the payment, I just can't recover from it. If I enter physical death in sin, then I now enter eternal separation from God. Eternal separation from anything defined as good. God had set up a system knowing that I couldn't pay. And He in His love would step in and pay it for me. His blood, His death for my blood and my death. Have you come to a place in your life? I didn't ask if you were religious. I didn't ask if you were good. I didn't ask if you had a moment back there somewhere you come to a place in your life where you've come to the end of yourself and you are trusting fully and wholly what 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 does Paul say here I cling I hold fast to the cross I hold fast to the gospel one thing I hold on to and it's not what a good person I've been or a good person I'm trying to be it's not the religious rituals that I can check off that I've covered you know you know the strange thing folks I I actually think we've kind of come to a new place in America. I'm not talking about all cultures. I'm talking about our culture. I I think a lot of people today, if they imagine going to stand before a God, I don't think they're going to go there and make a case for how good they are and how religious they are. You know what I think is kind of becoming our way of thinking? You know what my faith is as I stand before God? It's no big deal. Why wouldn't He accept me into heaven? Oh, yeah, I've done some things wrong. Everybody's done some things wrong. Everybody watches porn. Everybody lies. Everybody steals. Everybody cheats. Really, who's faithful today? Honestly, seriously. Who, who's got a list of how much better they are than me? And, and since we're all that way, it's just the way it is. It's who we are. If God's loving, He'll accept it. We're just actually, I think, beginning to come to a place where we're counting on the fact that sin is no big deal. When you look at the cross, do you think God's message there is that sin is no big deal? See, that's what it means to turn, come to the end of self, not trusting anything. I am trusting according to the scriptures what God's word says about me, what it says about sin, and what he says that it takes to resolve that sin. One more passage real quickly, Romans chapter 5. But God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, not while we were doing all of our religious duties, not while we were being such good. Quick, Jesus, run down there and die for him now because they're being really good. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Do you see the message over and over and over? The absolute consistency. Since therefore we have now been justified, that is a a legal term in a court of law, it would be to mean to be declared innocent. In this case, to be declared holy. 
Maybe a more practical way of understanding it, to be declared in right standing with God. Who wants that? Yes, that's what, I, that's what I'm looking for. How, how can I be declared in right standing with God when I go and stand before him? What's it say? By his blood. Hey, that, that's what he said 1,400 years ago, all the way back in, in Leviticus chapter 17. By his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, because that's what we are in all of our goodness, in all of our religiosity, because if I'm clinging to my goodness and I'm clinging to religiosity, what I'm actually saying is what you did for me at the cross is no big deal. Hey, what you did for me at the cross, I mean, that's fine, but did you see how good I've been? We're, we're, we're making our own lives equal to the love he showed at the cross. We're an enemy if we're not under the blood. Enemies, we were reconciled. Well, that means we made friends again, right? We're friends again. Hey, how can I be a friend of God? By the death of his son. By his blood, by his death. By his blood, by his death. It's in Leviticus. It's in Isaiah. It's in 1 Corinthians. It's in Romans. It's from Genesis to Revelation. Isn't it interesting that even in the Christian faith, we can think our good efforts and our good works save us. Do you see the wickedness of our heart to not throw our faith in what Christ did for us at the cross? Have you come to a place where you've turned from yourself, you've turned from sin, and you cling to the cross, you stand on the cross as the only thing of value in your life. The only thing you would stand before God and present. I've got nothing to present about me. But I hold. I hold to the cross of your son. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you for doing it at the exact, precise, and perfect moment. I don't even know that I fully grasp what all that means, but I thank you. I, th I thank you that there was nothing random about what you did. God, I thank you for the clearness and the consistency of your message over and over and over. You've made it clear what the problem is, who the enemy is, and how it's fixed. God, forgive us that we tend to put our hope and our trust in so many other people, so many other things, so many other religions of our own making. Lord, I know a lot of people in this room and maybe even watching us through the internet right now, I know a lot of us, we, we have believed on Jesus Christ. We have come to that moment. We're a, a friend of God now. Even, yea, the scripture says, a child of God forgiven of all of our sins, eternal life as our future. And God, we pause and we thank you for that. We thank you that Christ died for our sins. And Father, I pray that one sentence would shape my life. I pray it would shape how I respond to people I don't like. I pray it would shape how I respond to the good things that will happen this week, the bad things that will happen this week. I pray it shapes how I see others. God, help us to stand in, to stand on the gospel. But Lord, I also know that throughout this room right now, there would be probably dozens of people who maybe somewhere back there believed, but they know it's in vain. 
they know that belief never really has become anything in their lives. Or, or maybe, Father, they're in a place now where they're realizing they've never believed. They've, been, they've tried to be good. They've tried to be religious, but they've never believed. Father, I pray that you would speak to that person right now that needs your gospel. I pray my voice becomes very vague and fuzzy and they can barely hear it. And I pray they feel your touch and they hear your voice calling them to the gospel. I pray they're not responding to me. They're not responding to an emotion. But God, they're responding to your voice in their life right now. Calling them to be saved. Calling them to the great gift of your love. So that they can be a friend of God. Lord, tell them who they are. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.